Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Find hidden clues and uncover a murder mystery. Solve mind-teasing mysteries of the Roaring Twenties. Engage your sense of observation to find hidden clues. Search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris and uncover a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve. We're all here because we love true crime, right? Well, this game has the perfect twists and turns to keep your brain asking, what happened here? There's nothing I love more than getting to decorate my very own luxurious state island. The best part? You can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Black Girl Gone Afterthoughts. I, of course, am your host, Amara, and I am here with my co-host and husband, Jason. What's going on? So uh, this week, we did something a little different. We had our 100th episode. Uh, I talked about that a little bit in the beginning of the episode, but... Bravo, but you don't skip past it. I know. It's a, it's a, it's a huge <laughs> that's, that's milestone, especially when you're talking about podcasting, you know, making it to the 100th episode. I'm definitely very proud of Black Girl Going Podcast. I'm really, I'm really proud of what we've done. It's unbelievable. It's, it, it's, it's weird because on one side, it's like, I can't believe that we've gotten to 100 episodes. But I think we've talked about this before. Like, in some ways, it feels like... We've done way more than 100 episodes. Yeah. And I mean, with the bonus episodes that we've done here and there, you know, there has technically been more than 100 episodes. But when you talk about just regular full episodes, this is the first. I mean, this, you know, there's only been 100 of the episodes. But, um, you know, we're also approaching the two-year anniversary of the podcast. Two years, March. Yeah, March 15th will be two years. That went by fast. That went by super that fast. Went by fast. That went by super fast. Um, and so, you know, my thinking going into the 100th episode, into year two, was that I wanted to start including more stories of uh, teenage Black girls. Because as we all know, if you've been listening to, show, to this show from the beginning, the focus of the show has always been Black women, women over the age of 18. And that is will continue to be the focus of the show. However, I am especially as the show grows, I am way more aware of stories that I wasn't aware of. Now, the Millbrook Twins doesn't happen to me. I did know about that story before, but there are a bunch of other stories about young Black women who are 14, 15, 16, 17, who have gone missing or, or who have been murdered and their murders are unsolved, who need that attention. And because for the same reasons that the women that we cover are not getting the attention or that, you know, from the media or the law enforcement, 
these teenage black girls also are not get, are you know for the same reasons. And so as this platform grows, I say that all that to say, as this platform continues to grow, I want to open up this space for um, those stories as well. And I thought that the 100th episode of the podcast would be a good uh, episode to start with and start with the story of the Millbrook twins because it's a it's a really crazy story when you think about what happened from the beginning until what we know now. Um, but it was also a highly requested story. A lot of people have been requesting me to do that story from really the beginning. And so that's why I chose this story. That's why I well, chose well, I'm glad you, um, you know, felt the need to start to add that to uh, the Black Girl Going platform. And I, I think that's, uh, I think that's, I think it's good. I think it's wonderful, man. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so so let's uh, as we always do, we're talking about the disappearance of Danette and Jeanette Millbrook. Yes. Uh, Augusta, Georgia. Uh, shout out to everybody that lives in uh, Augusta, Georgia. Yeah. Shout out to Georgia. Um, hope everybody is well. Um, th- let's do a recap. Um, give us a recap of uh, this case and what you know about this case. Okay. So this week, if you listen to the story already, then you know that we covered the story of the disappearance of 15-year-old twins, Danette and Jeanette Millbrook. They were from Augusta, Georgia, and they disappeared on March 18th, 1990. The story goes that on that day, uh, both Danette and Jeanette left their home to go to their godfather's home to pick up money for the bus. They had recently moved, um, and so they were no longer able to take the school bus like they had been taking. They were in high school. And so now they needed to take public transportation. And, you know, their mom was short on money. And so they asked their godfather when to borrow the money from their godfather. Um, and so, but they had to walk. Um, and so they walked to their godfather's house. We do know uh, that they made it to their godfather's house. He gave them the money. Um, they made two other stops. They stopped at their cousin's house. They stopped at their sister's house. Um, and then after that, they went to a gas station, bought some snacks, some soda, some chips, and then they left. And then no one ever saw Danette or Jeanette again. Uh, when they didn't come home later that evening, their mom reported them missing. Well, well I should say she called the police to report them missing. Okay. The police uh, would refu- refuse to take the uh, missing person's report, told her that they needed to be missing 24 hours before she could file a report. She went out looking for them, couldn't find them, waited to the next day, filed the report. Um, and then basically nothing kind of happened after that. Police almost immediately classified these young girls as being runaways um, and basically tried to find every reason why they would have ran away. Didn't do much of an investigation at all. Talked to a few people. And then a year after their disappearance, they closed the case. Uh, the fa- the family finds out that not only was the case closed, but then their uh, profiles were also removed from the database of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children because a police officer had called and told them that the twins had been found, which, of course, was not true. And now here we are 33 years later, and the twins are still missing. Okay. That's a very good recap. I uh, appreciate that. Now, um, so before we go into the interesting things about this case, yeah. Um, of course, I listened to the case. Yeah. Once I listened to it, one thing that you said, uh, which is kind of 
the reason why you do this show in the first place mm-hmm. is about the cops, um, you know, saying it was too soon uh, for them to look for the twins because yeah. they were lost. Yeah. Now, I think that we see in like most, you know, crime shows or most situations where they're looking for somebody, they always say that it's 24 hours. Yeah. But um, the thing that strikes me the most is like, in a, in a realistic situation where your kid is missing and you're asking for help, mm-hmm. is it like 24 hours? It might be, I might be reporting this 6 a.m. I'm supposed to go to work. Like, well, yeah. you know what? I'll, <laughs> yeah, okay, no. we'll talk about this tomorrow. You know, I'll go to work and have a great day. So that's always just one of the things that I come back to when, when you talk about, about these cases. Like yeah. 24 hours is like, okay, I understand the rule, but that's a, yeah. that's a long time with somebody that you love. Two people that you love. Exactly. And, you're, and you're, you're children. And I think that, you know, they're, so... And, and, you know, we're this is, you know, 33 years ago. So we're talking about 1990. And back then, things were different. And there has been things that have changed. There are a lot of police departments who have changed that policy, especially when it comes to children. Okay. Uh, there's no waiting period to file a missing person. So there's a lot of, there's been a lot of change. I, I do believe that in some police departments, that's, that rule still exists for adults because it's it's different with adults. Sometimes adults are not missing. Sometimes they just are not answering the phone for right. 24 hours. And so they do tend to um, wait longer in those situations. But I believe because of situations like the Millbrook twins, and not particularly their situation, but other situations like this, that rule of that 24 hours for, for children, for people under the age of 18, has um, changed in, in, in you know, modern times. But to think back to that time in 1994, Mary, who is the twins' mother, for her to call the police knowing that her twins, we have twins, are not go- home, you know right. your children. You know this is not like them. You know this is not something that they do. Now they're not home. They don't come home. And the police are telling you, oh, well, you got to wait until this same time tomorrow before we'll even take talk the, about it. Yeah, we'll, we'll even, even talk about it. We'll even think about your kids. Yeah. Like, that's crazy. And that's what Mary had to deal with. And then not only had to deal with in the immediate aftermath of the disappearance, but then for decades to come, she had to deal with this kind of ignoring of her children and it's 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 really devastating okay so let's get into some of the interesting things um about this case things that you find interesting of course about this case yeah so there are a lot of layers to this case there are a lot of things that we found out later on decades later uh like i said in the episode if it wasn't for the Fall Line podcast, there's so many things about this story that we wouldn't even have known. Uh, we might not even have known the story at all. I mean, they they revealed a lot of things. They took a lot of time. They spent an entire season on this case. And, um, and that is even why they did the documentary on Oxygen. It was based from the work that this podcast had done, the, the, the legwork. And so it's important for... Um, you know, if you, like I said, if you, you know, really want to take that deep dive into the investigative part of this, um, listening to that podcast is, is, is a really good way to, to learn more or even, even deeper into this case. But today on, you know, Afterthoughts, we are going to talk a little bit more about some of the things that are missing or interesting and, and, and just kind of dive a little deeper into this case. So for me, I kind of start with the walk. 
that they took for when we're talking about the most interesting things about this case. Because that's kind of where this all begins. That's where the story begins. We start off with the family going to church that Sunday. We just, we, they, um, the girls, they, they all go home and then they decide that they're going to get church's chicken. The girls walk to churches and then they come back home. And when they come back home, they mention that a white van had been following them. Right. I remember that part of the story. Yeah. Okay. So they mentioned the white van that had been following them. But as far as we know, there's not a lot of other conversation about this van. It, it was enough that the girls mentioned it, but what else we know about that van or if they had ever seen it before, or who was driving it, all of that type of stuff is is not known. So they come back home their mom, you know, they're talking to their mom. They need bus fare for the week. Their mom suggests they call their godfather. They call their godfather. Godfather says, Godfather Ted says, sure, I'll give you $20, but you got to, you know, you got to come get it. Now, the thing that I, I also found was interesting was that the the walk, according to um, the research that's been done about this case, is would have been about a 40-minute walk for the girls, which is a really, that's a really long walk. That's long. That's a long walk. Um, for you know anybody, I, yeah, yeah, I don't know. That's long for me. Yeah, I don't know yeah, if I could walk long. for forty minutes. Nah. I'm pretty on the lazy side, yeah. and I, you know, I'm <laughs> pretty much driving it. I don't even want to walk around the corner. So, to forty minutes—that's a long time. But these, but these are also teenagers. So you have to imagine being fifteen. Maybe when I was fifteen, that wouldn't have been. You know, I remember many a times you'd be like, "Oh, we'll just walk." You know, you didn't have cars, and you know, so you know, you have to keep that part of the story in perspective. But anyway, so the girls. Decide that you know that they're gonna not decide, but they have to walk to to Godfather Ted's house to get the money. Now the Ted's house is in their old neighborhood. Like I mentioned, they had moved recently and within the past few months. And this old neighborhood's where all their family lived, all their friends. So this wasn't them walking to a strange place. This was them walking to a familiar place. So they get to Ted's house. Ted gives them the money. They then leave Ted's house, and the next stop is their cousin's house. Now. Ted says in the documentary that he didn't know where the girls were going. He assumed they were going back home. But at 15, like I said in the, I kind of mentioned in the story, they probably were just like, hey, we're here. We don't walk 40 minutes. Right. Let's stop by a couple more places. It's still <laughs> early. Yeah, yeah because they said they left the house at about three o'clock. And if it's a 40 minute walk, if we're even being exact, we're talking them getting there sometime 340, 345. Um, and so they stay at, the Uncle Ted's house for a little, only a little while. So we're talking about, it's probably 4.30 in the afternoon. They don't have to be home until 7, according to what Mary has instructed them. Be home before dinner, which was about 7 o'clock. So they decide to go to their cousin Juanita's house. Now they get to Juanita's house. And Juanita at the time, um, and I, I don't believe I included this in the story, but Juanita at the time, in they she talks about this in the documentary that's on Oxygen, Juanita was a little kid at this time. Juanita said she was like nine or 10 at this time. So she's little. She's not a teenager like them. So you have, that also puts in perspective. So they go and visit Juanita, but they were close. This is their their cousin. When they get to Juanita's house, they ask Juanita to come and spend the night at their house, walk back home with them. Uh, But Juanita's mom says no. And Juanita says that her mom didn't want her to walk back home because it was starting to get dark. When you put in perspective that Juanita was only nine or ten years old, you could understand why her mom just wouldn't want her to be walking forty minutes with her older cousins back to their house. Okay, so then they leave and they go to their sister's house, who just recently had a baby. 
And the other, one of the other interesting things is that when they get to their sister's house, they ask their sister to walk them home. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning this part of the story again is because those two things. At their cousin's house, they ask their cousin to walk them home or walk with them home. And then when they get to their sister's house, who just recently had a baby, can you walk us home? Right. Which makes you think, did, were they afraid of yeah, something? Some, some, yeah. Something were they nervous? Exactly. Yeah, or or they, was, they was afraid they of something. They were spooked yeah. by something. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, wow. Was it the white van? Did they see the white van? Now, now we don't know. They don't. But what something happened. Or maybe just that earlier encounter with the white van had spooked them. And it's funny that you say that, which yeah. is a good, interesting thing. Because... Mm-hmm. A lot of the times, kids, even if they're 14, 15, if they, even if they have a great relationship with their parents, or, you know, they don't tell them things. Yeah. You know, or, or even a, even an older sister. Sometimes they, you know, they don't want them to know what's going on or what happened. Or they're or, just not are, are, are articulate with their thoughts right. in that way. We It's not a big deal. Oh, my God. Don't do it. Like, I, I, don't want, you know, I don't want to put them <laughs> they, on blast on the all, podcast, but we, all do it. we know we know how <laughs> it is. We have a teenager they, that's, that's just like... <laughs> What is this man thinking about right now? Like, are you here? Are you aware? Are you awake right, right now? So right. imagine that's happening to him and him just like kind of mentioning that he would all. just be like, that wasn't, dad, wasn't that big a deal? Right. That's how he would, because yeah. in their minds, even if initially it spooked them, we know teenagers, they're, they're even, even in the nineties, like right. this is teenagers, in, in some ways teenagers have evolved because of technology, but a, a lot of ways teenagers are fundamentally the same because of how their brains are. Are developed. Um, so anyway, so back to the story. So, so that to me is a really interesting part of the story, and 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 it, we, but we don't we don't have any proof of what it signals. But to me, afterthoughts. My afterthoughts about that are that it signals something. It signals either they were nervous or they just wanted that extra security. But either way, neither of the people that they asked to walk them home are able to walk them home or, you know, their sister just had a baby. So it it's not uh, ridiculous that she couldn't walk 40 minutes with her sisters back to, back to her, back to their home. And then she would have to come, how would she get back home? Right. You know, so all of those I, things. I honestly didn't put that together, which, yeah. is, which is really good. Yeah. That's, she she's, that's, that's she really just had a baby. She just had a baby. And, yep. and, and we're talking about a 40 minute walk and there's no car. They're short on money. All of these things are, are in effect. So she just couldn't go. And then of course the little cousin, couldn't go because her mom said no. So the twins leave, and then their next stop is the gas station. Their next and last stop that we know about is this gas station, the Pump and Save, which was a gas station they had been to many times when they lived in that neighborhood. It's not out of the ordinary for them to be in there, all of that. Clerk knows who they are, recognizes them, go in there, buy snacks, and then they disappear. They leave the, they leave the gas station, and they disappear. The clerk mentions something about seeing them in the parking lot and then basically like she turned her head this is this is part of what she's what she told tells the police or uh what the investigators and and she turns her head for like a split second and in that moment she turns back and the girls are gone so she never sees which direction they walk in she doesn't see them off in the distance she doesn't see them get into a car none of those things okay and then that's where we're left at with that part of the story but I believe that, and it's hard to say, but like I said, we're just kind of throwing out things right now. But 
I believe that that the, the, that walk is a significant part of the dis- this disappearance. Something in that walk, somebody saw them, somebody was following them, somebody was watching them. Because for two girls to go missing that quickly, blink of an eye, split second, nobody ever saw these girls again. According to what we know to have been proven. Now, of right. course, we'll go. Bit, we'll get into some of the rumors and some of the things that have been found out later. But based on the the evidence that we know so far about what happened, nobody ever saw these girls again. So that that makes that one of the most interesting parts of the story because right. it's the beginning, but it's also almost what we know the most about. We can track their movements up until that point. After that point, we don't. We were unable to track what happened. And so it really ends, it starts with them going to their godfather Ted's house, and it ends at that gas station, which is always weird because I've, I've told so many stories that that end with women at gas stations disappearing. I don't know what it is about gas stations. Make you nervous to go to a gas station. Right. Make it, like, especially at night or something. Because it's like, how many stories have I told where the last time they saw this woman was on surveillance at a gas station? Yeah. Like. I don't and that's know. That's a lot of. That's, that's the, just weird. Unfortunately, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of these stories. A lot of them. It's just weird. Like I don't know. And just the fact that this was a gas station as well, and you know, we're talking about a case that happened thirty three years ago. It's just the gas station always seems to be a very interesting thread in these stories. I don't know what that means, but anyway. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a good. Um, that's a good uh, list of things, and like, just the you know just that walk and then you know between that and you know the police not wanting to you know help right away um i guess you could see how that plays like a major part yeah and you know maybe them knowing what happened or you know having you know information that that at that time they could have really pursued information and, and and had some leads like between those two things yeah you know, I just feel like, you know, if, if you know, if that's what you have is interesting. Mm-hmm. It really puts the, you know, the case in them, the police, um, just not. Yeah, uh, the, the the lack of care, the yeah, lack of, the those, lack of, yeah. The, you might have been able to solve the case if early with those. With, with those, yeah, because it seems the, like there was enough fact, there. couple facts. Yeah, yeah, there was enough there at the time to at least pursue. And it's. Yeah. But 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 that's difficult when you're starting off with the mindset that they're runaways, right. you know. So you have these things. You have the, like I said, the timeline of the events where we have eyewitnesses that account for those timelines. We have their last known whereabouts. We have all of those things. But the the police, yeah, like I said, they they just you know classified them as runaways from the beginning, and there was never an attempt to really find these girls. Outside of uh, their mom and their family, the police pretty much wrote these, wrote, wrote these girls off from jump. So let's talk about another interesting thing that you have about the case. Okay, so, like I said, we the, 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 the story about what we know for sure based on witness accounts ends at the gas station. So let's fast forward a little bit because we know that after the girls are reported missing after 24 hours, nothing really happens. The police speak to a couple of witnesses uh, and then they draw the conclusion that the, one of the girls has gotten pregnant. That We don't even really know where they got that part of the story from. 
One of the girls got him pregnant and they both decided to run off together with the less than $20 they had between them. So that's the story that the police come up with. And for the next year, there's no movement on the case of the twins. In 1991, April 1991, police come to Mary, knock on her door, and basically tell her, hey, uh, so the case is closed. And uh, now that the girls are 17, because they went missing before their 16th birthday, and now they would have been 17 years old. Now that they're 17, according to Georgia law, we we don't got to look for them no more because we can't make them come home. Which lets you know that they just thought that these girls were in a way. They didn't think anything had happened to them. And so they were happy to close the case and get this, you know, out of their hair and off their desk or whatever it was doing. And then um, a few years, two years later, her family finds out that the case had been removed from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's Database, which their names had been placed there really early on and when after they'd gone missing. When they call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, they tell them, oh, well, we removed their names because somebody from the police department called us and told them that the girls had been found. So when they call the police, police basically say, yeah, that our database basically says the same thing. And so we had this period of time where there's really no official um, documentation that these girls are even missing. There's a at least a three-year three period of time where there's no documentation that they're missing. And so that leaves open so many questions about, we, we know why they closed the case, right? We know why they closed the case early on, because they didn't want to investigate it, right. obviously. They didn't, they didn't want to deal they with it. They didn't want to deal with it. But why did they remove these girls' names? Why would you take the time out of your day to decide that you're going to call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and not just say, oh, whatever excuse you gave to marry the mom, oh, these girls are 17 and we can't, whatever. You're going to make up a whole lie and say that these girls have been found. And so, you know, there's information that there was maybe the cops may have thought that these girls had been adopted. Maybe there was some confusion and thought that CPS had taken these 15-year-olds. And, and it just just a bunch of what, what's, what amounts to me is just complete BS. Like, none of it, like, it, it, I guess it could be something that happened. Maybe they did think that. I don't know. Nah. But, Cause <laughs> right? Because even if the kids... Had been they they would have found a way to reach out exactly. We might not have cell phones exactly. I was a there, teenager. There, we there, had pay phones. There's a whole documentary out about them. Like there's a whole there's podcast about them. People nah. are talking about like so that whole that whole kind of justification for them. It, it, it like I said, there's been a lot of BS justifications on behalf of the police department over these past thirty three years. So that part of the story, it makes you wonder. Now, people, I've seen people commenting on TikTok and Instagram that they think that that means that the cops are involved. Now, anything is possible because the cops didn't move very shadily in this situation. I think it has way more to do with the fact that they just didn't care about these little black girls than that there was a cop involved. Now, like I said, anything is possible. You right. never know, um, especially when you're talking about botched investigations and, and things like that. You don't never know the root yeah. cause of those investigations. Might be a cover-up. Might be a cover-up. Might be a cover-up. But in my kind of thinking about this case, I I do think that it's more more to do with the fact that these were 15-year-old black girls from a, you know, low-income area, poor area, however you want to call it, in Augusta. And they just made all of these assumptions about them. And so 
that's why we're here. Now, the explanation about the names being removed from the database, I, I, I don't know. They don't have no, no, no explanation. I can't really even come up with a theory why someone would do that. I, I really don't know because I don't see how that would benefit them unless they had something to do with it and just didn't want anybody to be looking for these girls. That's what it makes it seem like. And if that wasn't the case, it's hard to understand why they would do that. It's it, it really is. And so I can see why people would make comments like, oh, it might be the police or the police might be involved because it's very suspicious, shady behavior on behalf of the police department. And they've never said that it wasn't them. They've kind of acknowledged that it was them. They just haven't said who it was because whoever did it didn't document it. So, so yeah. And yeah. The fact that in 2013, and this is even prior to the Fall Line podcast coming out because the Fall Line podcast premiered their first episode in 2017. This is 2013, and I don't even know what prompted this. And I and I, and it, and it might have just been the the calls from the twin sister who had been constantly calling police over the years to kind of get you know information about her sister's disappearance. But in 2013, the police. Uh, decide that they're going to reopen the investigation. And they come out and they say that, you know, they admit that they botched the investigation and that, you know, this it was handled poorly and that blah, 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 and that they're going to do the right thing and reopen it and, and you know, put all these resources into it. Um, then they also admit during that time period in 2013 that the case file uh, is lost. They don't know where the case file is. They don't know if it's been destroyed. They they can't find the original case file from 1990, which I would assume it poses a very big issue when you're talking about investigating a decades-old murder. The fact that you wouldn't have access to the original case file, however thin it may be, is going to be a setback. However, you know, they're, you know, they tell her family we're committed to, you know, investigating this again. And for her family, you know, this, the, they were happy. They were excited. They were like, oh, finally, like, they're admitting that they didn't do the right thing. They're admitting that they're going to, you know, reopen in this investigation. And then pretty much nothing happens. And so it's such a, it, it, it's an interesting part, but also on the same point, it's a cruel thing to do because after all of those years, they had given this family this hope, 23 years at that point, that um, that they were going to reinvestigate this case, that they were going to do the right thing, that they were going to make right their wrongs, and they really didn't. And I don't know why they did that. I don't know why they would admit that they had com- they, they they like I said that they had botched this investigation and then turn around and really ultimately kind of do nothing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think a lot of times in those time, in in that in, in that circumstance, sometimes they feel like sometimes they might feel like they're writing their wrongs mm-hmm. by admitting, mm-hmm. you know, what they did, and that's just of, it, you know. Yeah, and like maybe, and maybe they felt like if we just say we didn't do the right thing, <laughs> that'll be <laughs> it'll enough. Go away. It'll go away. Maybe people will just stop talking about it, you know. And unfortunately for them, they didn't stop talking about yeah. it. The fall line came along, and the and the documentary, and people started. And, you know, looking into this case and realizing, oh, yeah, y- y- y'all messed up. I messed up really badly. Like, Yeah. So. All right. So let's go into my questions. Yes. Let's um, go into your questions. I didn't see any uh, questions from 
I didn't see any questions. I don't no, know if you I, saw any questions. I didn't. And I think somebody had made a comment and they were saying, and I think this is kind of what it is. It's like, even when I was looking at this case and preparing for afterthoughts and kind of going through my thinking about this, I think the fact that because at the beginning of the story, there was so little and there is so little, most of it is, you know, like I said, the fall line reinvestigates the the the, the situation the documentary, but there's just not a lot. And so I think people don't really have, don't even know where to draw their questions from, you know, right. but yeah. So, but yeah, you have your questions. So you were able to, you were able to really, you know, come up with some questions. So what you got? All right. So this is my first question. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we already know, like you said, the, the police Detect- mm-hmm. And the detectives, you know, they botched the investigation. Yes. And anyway, you know, of course, you know, and I want to make sure this is clear. These, This is what you research. You have all the research. Um, I don't have any of the research. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I have, my question is this. My question is, they the police didn't talk to any of their friends. I'm thinking, you know, kids, two 15-year-old girls, they're going to high school. Mm-hmm. It's the 90s. Mm-hmm. And just like I said, I think I might have said this last week. The friends, you got it. It's always something that, you tell, that you're telling your friends mm-hmm. that you don't tell your mom, you don't tell your family. Um, so did they ever take the time? Speaking of botched, like, did they ever take the time to talk to any of these, you know, any of the twins' friends at school? So as far as we know, they did talk to people at school, but... The twins had only they were only they were freshmen at the school. This was March. As far as we could, as far as I could tell, they didn't really know that many people at that school. Um, and so the people that they did talk to, they knew the girls. They you know they were the twins. I guess you know I'm sure they knew them, but they didn't. Uh, they I, I couldn't say that they were friends of theirs. They did speak to her sister. They did speak to the cousin. After that, but that was about it. As far as I know, I don't know how many other friends or actual people that knew uh, Danette and Jeanette. And I don't know how many close friends they had. I don't know. That's not really revealed, like how many close friends they had. Like I kind of mentioned in the story, their mom says that they were homebodies. They were twins. We know twins tend to kind of stay to themselves. And so even though people may have known them, maybe they didn't talk to a lot of people and they didn't have these close friends, but it didn't matter because police didn't talk to a lot of people, period. Like it just didn't, it's like from what we know, they talked to a couple of people here and there. They didn't, there was a lot of people they didn't talk to. So, yeah. Okay. So my next question Mm -hmm. is in the episode, you didn't talk much about the twins' uh, father. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember you mentioning it at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. But what what do you know about uh, the father of the twins? Yeah, so we don't we don't know a lot about him. We know that he wasn't really involved in the children's lives, um, as you know. I, as far as the rumors go, he had a drug problem. He lived in this house. You know, there was the, these these kind of things about him. Um, but the girls didn't really have much of a relationship with him. Um, there's a mention of a stepfather at this point in their lives. And so it just, you know, they had their godfather. They did um, have a relationship with their father's 
parents, with their paternal grandparents. But as far as their dad, they didn't really have much of a relationship with him. And so, um, yeah, that there's just there's just not a lot of of information about him. We know that he died. Uh, I believe it was January 2021, and I'm that's his. I, I believe it. Yeah. So, you know, he's he's now deceased. Um, but there's information that the um the sister I believe spoke to him, and when she asked him, you know, something about you know asked him about the twins, he said something along the lines of like, you know, they're dead or they're some, some, something along those lines. Yeah. But police have never said whether they spoke to him, whether they interviewed him. Um, He did live in that neighborhood. He lived in, this is, you know, this is, they all lived in kind of in the same area. He didn't live far from where the girls were that afternoon, but they never questioned him. They never asked him, had he seen his daughters? Okay. Did they stop? Did they go to the gas station and stop by there? We don't know. That information um, has never been revealed. And it's it's now it's lost because he's not, he's dead. So Okay, but you've talked about uh about the the, the oxygen documentary. Yes. And they interviewed someone saying that, you know. The drug house. It was a drug house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, or his his house was a drug house. Yeah, yeah. He had drug parties or something. Like yeah, that. something something along those lines. Yeah. So in the oxygen documentary, which came out in 2019, I'm they, sorry that wasn't a question, but you. Yeah. No. You, no. No. You it was. Yeah. You know. I know. I do. I, yeah. <laughs> it's it's part of the first question. It's a tag along to this first question. No, I get it. Um. So yeah, the the documentary comes out in 2019, and as part of this documentary, the people who are investigating this, Laura Coates and another gentleman, his name is escaping me at this moment. I should have wrote it down, but I didn't. Um, so um, so they're, they're investigating this and they get this information from someone who is uh, in jail and he claims that at the time he was 12 years old. He's a 12-year-old drug dealer and he was at John Millbrook, who is the twin's father, for, for those who are, you know, that John Millbrook is the dad. He was at his home while there was a party going on where there was people using drugs and this was kind of like a known kind of hangout for people who use drugs and blah, 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 blah. And that he had seen the twins at the house that night. Now, I believe in the documentary he says that they were intoxicated or some, some he makes some claim like that about the twins, like that they, they weren't just there. But... The documentary kind of, you know, part, pr- presents this evidence to the police, I guess. And the police basically say like, oh, well, you know, we spoke to him or, you know, that story doesn't have anything to do with the twins. And that was pretty much, pretty much it. And he's maintained that his story is true and that that's what happened. But, uh, you know, I, I guess even him being a 12-year-old at the time, all these years ago, it's it's a it's a difficult thing, especially when the police didn't investigate it from the beginning. So now trying to go back and investigate it. Um, but yeah, so that that's what we know about the father, his house, the rumors about the, the girls being there that night come from that man, but there's no other uh corroborating witnesses or information, obviously there's not going to be, you know, home surveillance. There were no ring cameras back there and things like that. So that type of stuff is, is just not available. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's good. Um, 
That's good. Thank you for answering my question. No problem. That's one of the that's one of the uh that's one of actually the first questions I had about the case. Yeah. Uh but then my next question, um, uh, which you don't talk about, I didn't at least I didn't hear it. Did they have any suspects? Did they uh, take anybody into custody and <laughs> say that, you know, you made did they talk to anybody? No. There were never any suspects. There were never any interviews of any potential suspects, any persons of interest. That literally Desperate. never, so never crazy. happened. It never happened. And like I said, and it, and it's literally because of the fact that from the beginning they 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 said these girls were runaways. And and like I said at the end of the episode, I believe that they from the moment they decided these girls were runaways that then everything that they did from that point on was not to prove that they weren't runaways but was to prove that they were that was the act they were inf- they were accessing information that would lend to their theory so if somebody made even if they went like you said you asked about people them um I'm sorry uh, interviewing witnesses and did they talk to their friends? Well, whoever they talked to at the high school, they kind of made it seem like they indicated like that the girls may be pregnant. And so, so whatever it is that whether whether it was like an off cuff remark or something that maybe didn't paint them in the best light, they 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 took that information and was like, oh okay, well see, yeah, these are runaways as opposed to listening to their her mom, the people who actually knew them. Um, her mom, their mom, the people who actually knew the twins, people who were close to them, people from their old neighborhood. They didn't do that. They just they just wrote these girls off. They just decided that they were runaways, and it's sad because they weren't runaways. You know, not, nothing that we know now about this case, about the situation says anything other than something happened to these girls. We Why would they run away? Run away from what? They, they didn't have a reason to run away. Both of them? Yeah, I find it really hard that those girls uh, ran away. I know yeah. it happens in this country. I know kids run away. But yeah, just happens. that particular situation, it... it... I don't know. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. It doesn't when you when you really look at it and you and you open up what what we like. I said when you look at what we've what we know so so what we've been able to find in these, um, you know, recently about the case and what people have been able to under, uncover. It it doesn't it doesn't point to a runaway situation. It points to something happened to these girls and had it been investigated properly from the beginning we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be talking about this as an unsolved disappearance. Um, I don't know what happened to Danette and Jeanette, but I know that they didn't run away and that something must have happened to them after they left that gas station. What? We don't know. And that's the that's the sad part, and that's the mystery of this story. Yeah. Um, this is my last question. Yes. It's a, it's a little bit more... Um, it's less about the case and more broad. Do you think that a lot of the times um, these police departments don't have the resources to pour into these cases? Like, do you mm-hmm. feel, do you feel like, like, I don't, like I said, I don't know, like divisions. Mm-hmm. I know they have like robbery, homicide, mm-hmm. and, but do you think that, you know, I know they have, you know, yeah. departments dedicated towards missing people, Yeah, but is it something that needs to be, you know, well, focused for sure. a little bit more for police departments, especially, you know, like you said, they changed the 24-hour thing. So mm-hmm. obviously that part um, is important. But just overall, like, are, are we not dedicating um, enough time, enough, to, enough, enough resources, tax dollars? Are we not, is that something that's, 
you know, that you well, think Well, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I think happening. that, uh, yeah, for sure. So to answer your question, yeah, there are a lot of police departments. Like we think about there are large cities and there are small cities and there are towns and there are little places, you know, and, and most of them have police forces and some of them, you know, we live in Philly. We have a, a large police force because we live in a large city. And so there's a lot of cops. But if you go to a smaller area, even when we travel outside of the city, just to the suburbs, you know, they, if you go, you know, Abington, they got three cops out there, you right. know, <laughs> you know, out Lansdale, there's two cops, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's not a lot of cops, you know right. what I mean? And so in those situations, if you think about those cops, yeah, some some of these departments don't have detectives. And, you know, and it police, be, it, um, Police that are on the street, beat cops, as they call them, they they don't investigate homicides. They don't right. investigate missing people. So you need a detective who can dedicate their time and, and their skill to investigating these crimes. And a lot of these police departments do not even have detectives. And so what happens is that then they have to call in, you know, bigger departments. And a lot of times what happens is that the smaller departments will call in the state police and then the state police will join it or the state uh, Bureau of Investigation will will join it. But that also requires them to reach out to those people and say, hey, listen, we have this missing person. We we can't deal with this. We need, because what happens is that as, as far as I know, and I, I know this is true for the FBI, the FBI won't just come into a case. The FBI won't just join a case. They have to they be, be asked. requested, okay. Yeah, they have to be asked. The police department has to say, hey, listen, we need your help. This person has been missing. This is what we have, and we need more resources to help us locate this person, or we have this unsolved murder, or whatever it is. And so I, I I would assume that that's true for for in all of those things because there's jurisdictions, there's rules to these things, and so they're not just going to come over, come in and take over your investigation. You would have to ask them. And so a lot of the times, the then the question becomes: How many times in these cases are these cases important enough? for these smaller departments to reach out to the state police, to right. the to the state bureaus of investigation, to the FBI. And a lot of times, it's not. It's right. just, we know they didn't call the FBI in on this case. Um, and then even when they do call the FBI, sometimes that doesn't make a difference. We know that even we did the Ella, fit, um, I'm sorry, Ella, um, Ella Goody, I'm sorry, Ella Goody case, and and they called the FBI in on, in on her disappearance. And it hasn't really made a lot of difference. So... You know, it all comes back to the amount of care and concern that any of these departments, whether it's the little local police department, a large police department, or an, a, you know, and you know, the FBI or the yeah. state investigators. And that's why you have to have you have to have advocates. Yeah, you know, black black and missing foundation. Shout out to uh, black and missing foundation. Exactly. You got to keep it. You have to keep it to the forefront. Yeah, you, know? you so, do. You need so the advocacy. People, yeah, so people care. You know what I mean? Yeah, you need the advocacy it- and you need you need that at the forefront because otherwise they're not, you know, people keep, I keep, you know, I do interviews and people ask me like, what can we do? What can we do? And I'm like, I, I, I only thing we can do is what, what I'm doing. You know what I mean? It's just, and, and, and that's just to say like, we have to tell our own stories. We kind of realize that that's what it is. And yeah. so we have to tell our own stories. We have to be our own advocates. We have to make these stories important. We have to make these people see them. And unfortunately for the Millbrook twins, they lived in a time of no social media. They lived in a time where people were dependent on the news and the newspapers to elevate stories or to decide what was important for people to know. And um, and so, yeah, if this had happened now, there there might be a different outcome yeah. because people would be like, oh, 15-year-old twins are missing? Oh, we on this. But in, in that time period, they didn't have that. And so yeah. that's why we're here 33 years later. 
Well, this has certainly been an interesting afterthoughts. Yeah, it has. As it always, has. I want to thank you. The thank reason you. I the reason I thank you is because mm-hmm. um like why do you thank her? My brother, <laughs> my brother asked me that. Mm-hmm. Um the reason I thank you is because you take the time out to know more than the, you know, than the average person. Yeah. And then you want to share it. And I think that's, you know, something that I admire. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you. So well, thank I, you. I always want to say thank, you know, thank you for sharing your information. And um, yeah, I, I, I love, I, I appreciate that. I, you know, I, I, I enjoy being able to come here and share my thoughts with the audience, with you, just to kind of talk through these cases. Cause like, that's kind of the whole reason why we started the show. There's so many things about these cases that um, I want to talk about. I want to talk a little bit more about and um, give it a little bit more of that kind of in-depth, like just letting people know what I think. So um, so I appreciate that. And I hope you guys are um, enjoying these afterthoughts and, um, you know, what we have to bring to the to the show and, you know, our questions and our thoughts. Um, just, you know, we'll give a little bit more, a little bit more. We do the episode and give you the afterthoughts, you know? And as I, as I said before, feel free to, comment uh comments questions you can put them anywhere yeah, you can put them anywhere i see just, them like just, i know a lot of you guys are commenting on like when i post on instagram when i post the um afterthoughts you know episode coming up or even the original for the episode like either way like wherever you add the questions or your thoughts like i i see them and uh yeah i i sometimes even when they're not questions sometimes i just see your you know your thoughts about it and helps me to kind of um, form my thoughts and get get ready for for afterthoughts. So keep them coming. Keep keep the comments coming. Keep keep letting us know what you think. Um, whatever it is that you think, whatever your question is, don't matter. Let us know. And and like I said, it, it's it's helpful. So keep 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 doing it. Thanks. I appreciate you guys for for that. So um, that's it for this week's episode. Um, I thank you guys already for listening, but thank you again for listening. We, we will be back on Monday, of course, with a brand new episode of Black Girl Gone, and then back on Thursday with Black Girl Gone Afterthoughts. So thanks, guys, and we'll see you or talk to you next week. Peace. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.